Well, thanks for staying around. I appreciate that. And thank you, Devin, for letting me uh, get to know your folks better today. And uh, hopefully they'll get to know. Yeah, you had the day off. You just goofed off all week. Yeah, he got all of his papers done for school all semester this week. Yeah, don't you wish. I've been a Peanuts, Charles Schultz Peanuts fan since I was nine years old. That was 1965, so do the math. You can figure out how old I am. And this particular strip was written in, oh, I went too fast, 1976. Charlie Brown asks his dog, or says to his dog, Snoopy, I hear you're writing a book on theology. I hope you have a good title. And Snoopy says, I have the perfect title. It is, has it ever occurred to you that you might be wrong? That sums up my theological journey. When I grew up, I did not think I was wrong. I thought that everybody else was wrong, and I was the only one that was right. That's how, what we were taught. Denise and I both grew up Southern Baptist, and we never went to a class that said, we're the only ones that are right, and everybody else is wrong. But somehow that message seeped through. And it was in 1976 uh, that that was written. At that time, I was a sophomore in uh, college at Southwest Baptist College in Bolivar, Missouri, and uh, where I began my formal training in, in ministry. And it wasn't until 2005 that I began to think that Charles Schultz was talking about me and how this applied to my life and my theology. Go back a little bit further than my life, 1650, Oliver Cromwell wrote a letter to the Church of Scotland, which had abandoned Catholicism for Protestantism. And uh, you see what he said in a very colorful way. I beseech you in the bowels of Christ, and that goes very deep. That's, <laughs> that's a very deep wish. Think it possible that you may be mistaken. Think it possible that you may be mistaken. So my presentation to you today is hold on very loosely to some things. Consider the possibility that you may not have a clear understanding of it. I don't have a clear understanding of it. And what this statement was and what Charles Schultz had uh, Snoopy say was transforming to me. I, it was so freeing when I got to the point where I realized I might be wrong and that is perfectly okay that I might be wrong. I grew up in a world in which I was right and anyone who disagreed with me was wrong. I am a fourth generation Southern Baptist Convention pastor. Devin is a fifth generation pastor. He's never pastored a Southern Baptist church, but he certainly grew up in a Southern Baptist church and had Southern Baptist parents. From the moment I was born, I was immersed, good Baptist term, in uh, a conservative fundamentalist theology and culture. I grew up with Bible stories that were not stories. They were actual, factual, historical records of events. My favorite Bible story was when Jesus turned the water into sweet tea, which was the Baptist version of that story. That's the only story that the Baptist convention um, did not take literally. In that world of my life, the Bible was inerrant, no mistakes, no contradictions, everything lined up 
perfectly. It spoke with a unified voice. Uh, hell is real in that world. The rapture is real. It will happen at any minute, so get ready. Don't let Jesus catch you doing something that you would be ashamed of. And if I did not say the prayer to ask Jesus into my heart, if I died, I would go to hell. Or if Jesus came back in this rapture, I would be left behind. I remember one time at the grocery store in, uh, I think this was in Joplin, Missouri, where I lived for a little while. Mother and I were shopping, and I lost Mom. And I thought for sure the rapture had come. The only person left in the store was some guy squeezing melons and me. And I thought the rapture had come, and I had been left behind. So hell was a place that I was afraid of, obviously. Three times a week, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night church, I got a steady dose of uh, the gospel. And the gospel was, according to that culture, you are a horrible sinner, you deserve death, and you deserve hell, but Jesus took your place, and God's wrath absorbed that wrath for you. And if you say the prayer asking Him into your life, you can be free of that punishment of eternal torture in hell where God will not even give you if you're in hell a drop of water to cool you or a drop of Hawaiian punch whatever your drink of choice that you'll just suffer for an eternal agony and that was my life we used to pass around when I was in junior high to uh, local uh, shopping centers and when the fair would come to town we would pass around a track and this was a part of that track. They were called Chick Tracks, C-H-I-C-K. That's me. Not anymore. You're dead, these shadowy figures say. And the devil says, welcome to the abyss, Timmy. You'll be here for eternity because you died in your sins. And that was the gospel. I, I did not want to die in my sins. And so I had no choice but to say the prayer because I did not want this to be my experience. So when I was seven years old, that was a very young age, I said a prayer to ask Jesus into my heart, and I promised to follow a God that I loved, kind of, but I only loved him because I was afraid of him. I loved him because I didn't want him to punish me. So I'm not sure how much love was there, more fear than, than anything else. And I, I just did not want to be eternally tortured like some waterboarding victim or something the rest of, of the day. So, so I was very afraid of God. I was afraid to die, and I, I needed to do whatever I needed to do, and that was to say that prayer. And I think France, uh, or rather uh, Richard Rohr says the worst thing about the Christian religion today is that it has taught us to be afraid of God. And... Uh, and there's a, there's a reason for that. The Scripture talks about fear God, fear God, fear God. The beginning of wisdom is to fear God. And I was drilled into my head that I was to be afraid of God. And so to escape his punishment, I, uh, I asked him into my heart. And so in that world, 
It was a, as I got older, we developed not just a theology, but we developed a sociology and, and, and a view of people and a view of the culture, and I joined the culture war. My, my dad was good friends with James Dobson and Pat Robertson and Francis Schaefer and some of those guys, and Denise and I have a picture of ourselves standing with Pat Robertson and Dad's church in Little Rock. And so we were in this culture war, and I was a frontline soldier in that culture war in those days to take America back for God, you know. And, and so that meant that we were, uh, we were pro-life and pro-war. Now, 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 that just didn't make sense to me today. Then it didn't, I didn't have any problem with that. So we were pro-life and pro-war. We were anti-LGBTQ. We were anti-feminism, anti-science, anti-evolution. And we were uh, just very strong in that cultural war. And I was taught during that that there were two sides, my side, the right side, and their side, the wrong side. And anybody that didn't agree with me or didn't have my beliefs or didn't have my view, who did not vote like I did, uh, they were wrong. They were lost, spiritually lost. And uh, we were God's favorite. We were very much like uh, the Sneetches of Dr. Seuss. We had stars on dars, and they did not have on dars, and we were better than those without the stars. So it was in this stream of Christianity that I paddled my canoe to that Baptist college in Bolivar, Missouri, and upon graduation, I got my master's from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, which at that time was the largest seminary in the world, and it's located in Fort Worth, and that's when Denise and I uh, started dating and uh, led to uh, marriage and, and to Devon. That's how that all happened. So along this stream, uh, you know, I learned to cuss, you know, son of a biscuit, and uh, dag nabbit, and I learned to judge. I learned to judge really good. We were really very, very accomplished judges. We learned in, in Sunday school and uh, in training union and in a Wednesday night group called Sunbeams uh, a song, and the song went like this. Anybody else grow up Baptist? Okay, y'all know this song at all? It may be even beyond your generation. I may never march in the infantry, ride in the cavalry, and there are always arm motions and everything else to our songs. Shoot the artillery. I may never fly or the, over the enemy, but I'm in the Lord's army. And one of the most prominent of the body motions in that was to stomp our feet as we sang that song. I may never march in the infantry, shoot, you know, hard the artillery. We, we taught us ourselves to, to shoot anybody that didn't agree with us. And we all had these big boots on that were just taught to stomp on everybody, on anybody that were not us. And we became stompers. And we were taught as very young children, five years old is when I learned this song, that our job were, were, was to be a soldier for Jesus and stomp out anybody who was not like us. And uh, my problem today is that I probably still have some boots in my closet, and I still stomp. 
But today I, I, I stomp stompers. And I don't even know if that's what Jesus wants me to do. Now I'm learning that Christ is in the stompers too. And maybe their rough exterior is such that they've just been taught a certain way, and, but within them is something soft, the image, image of God. So during those years, I uh, sailed, paddled that canoe, but somewhere along the line, it's kind of started in seminary because I was presented with some things that were different than my theology of my youth. But one of the caveats to my seminary education was always this. For example, my Old Testament professors taught us that Moses did not write majority of the Pentateuch, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, it has three basic sources, the, the, the first five books of the Old Testament. Did Moses have a part in it? Of course he did. But as far as putting it together, it was not offered by Moses. But then they said this, don't go teach that to your people. When you graduate seminary and you have a church, don't tell your people that because that'll freak them out. And so almost every class that I had throughout my seminary education, it was, this is the truth, but don't tell your people the truth. It'll shake their faith. And so I was a good student. I was a compliant young man, and I just did what I was told. And, and I kind of put all those truths in the back of my mind. And I just, the first few years of pastoring, spat it off what I was told to, to preach. But along the, line, the, the stream, I, I did switch canoes. I began uncomfortable, feeling uncomfortable in that canoe. The, the seat was hard, and the swimming suit was sticky, and I just didn't like that canoe anymore. So I switched canoes. I didn't uh, like the view of the Scripture. We were taught in seminary that the Bible is not inerrant, but we were not to teach that. The Bible does have some contradictions. The Bible does not speak with a unified voice. We were taught, but do not teach that. And so I've, I, it was a cognitive dissonance. It's, it's not healthy to know something and not be able to be transparent about that. It's not healthy to be taught one thing and then to, to be told to suppress that. And it causes all kinds of internal turmoil. And it did for me and it did for Denise as well. The sound of the word inerrancy made me cringe. I would hear the kids' choir sing, uh, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. And I'd whisper to Denise, it's all about genocide. And there were just things that drove me crazy. You know, we are, Denise and I live in an area, Denise and Devin grew up in an area that's uh, is rampant with tornadoes. And so whenever a tornado would come through the area, the news reports would interview a person who was standing in front of their house that was all in one piece, everything was fine, but next door the house was nothing but splinters. And the individual who lived in the house that was still standing, oh, I just, I'm so thankful God's grace was on me, God's hand was on me, I'm just so blessed by God. But then the person next door, it, 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 I didn't like this view of God that would capriciously pick out, I'm going to blow up this house, but I'm going to preserve this house. And I began to ask, well, what, where's God's hand on this person? 
Why did God save that person's house but not this person's house? And I wasn't sure I liked that particular view of God. And I remember when my brother-in-law, my younger sister's husband, was dying of cancer. This was at Fellowship Bible Church. I'd already left the Baptist Church by this time and started the Bible Church in, in Springfield. And my brother-in-law was dying of cancer. And we had just sung a song like, It Is Well With My Soul. And uh, I got up after that song, and I said, you know, to be honest with you, it's not well with my soul today. You know, my soul is in turmoil. I am I'm pretty sad today. And I'm kind of mad. You know, he was only in, in his, in his uh, 40s, and I said, I just, it's not well today. And uh, we, at our next elders meeting, a week or two later, I was... Uh, disciplined, so to speak. I, I was called on the carpet for saying that. The, 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 me, the message the elders wanted me to communicate was that the pastor has it all together and that if I cannot go through a death of a family member with strength and resolve and a sense of presence of God and a sense of peace, then how can I expect anybody else to? And I began to think, I don't think I like this canoe at all. I don't, I, I've been dishonest about my theology and about my questions, and now I'm dishonest about my feelings, and that's not a healthy place for me to be. And so, as I got out of that canoe and I began to get into another canoe, two things happened in our lives that really made me do that. The first thing is, I read the Gospels. I'd read the Gospels before. I mean, I took every Gospel, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John class in college and seminary, and, you know, we, we read through the Bible several times as kids, Denise and I did. But uh, I read the Gospels, and I'm, I'm kind of like this guy here. <laughs> this guy on the left is uh, a physician, Thomas Lineker, and he served... Uh, Henry VII and Henry VIII as, their, as the king's physician. And late in his life, the physician here took Catholic orders. And when he took Catholic orders, they gave him a Bible. And that was a time in which lay people didn't have Bibles, so they just listened to whatever the, the, the pastor or the priest would say. And when this physician started reading the Bible, this is what he said about his discovery in the Bible. Either these are not the Gospels or we are not Christians. He had seen how people were living, how the priests were living, how the Pope was living. And then he looked at this is how what we're, they're saying Christianity is, and this is how they're expressing Christianity, but this is the actual life of Jesus, and these two things don't fit. That's what Denise and I did. We started reading the Gospels without the glasses of our denomination, without the glasses of our education, without the glasses of even what our parents taught us. And it's a healthy thing to do. I encourage all of us to do that. Uh, and when I read the Gospels as if for the first time, I was moved and saddened and, and confused at the values of Jesus are so different than the values of the church. And the life of Jesus and who he loved and what he did were so different than the messages that I was getting from the church. 
And that, and that really moved me in the, the, the conflict between that. Reminds me of this cartoon. As Jesus shows up in church, the pastor doesn't even know who he is. And the way of Jesus and the values of Jesus in my church experience were not being exhibited by the church. It may have been different for you. Cool for me to move beyond where I was and to actually define being a Christian as living like Jesus with his values and, and his purpose. And I felt such a huge disconnect. I had to express that disconnect. And this is when I was at the Bible Church, Fellowship Bible Church. I had to express what I felt was a, uh, a shortfall between what Jesus is and said and what we were doing and saying in our church. And I, I had to bring that up, and I had to bring up my questions about theology and my questions about everything. And I got to the point where no longer did I want to suppress my doubts, but I wanted to express my doubts. No longer did I want to suppress the questions. And when I started asking questions, my gosh, you know, we were running about 1,600 at that time at Fellowship, and the overwhelming response was, thank you, Philip. I've had the same questions. Thank you, Philip, for saying that you're struggling with that because I do too. It makes me feel like I'm not weird and I'm not terrible. The only people that didn't like it were my bosses. And so I was kind of put on notice. But I had, I had to decide what's it going to be here, my own health, spiritual, emotional, physical health. And that was only going to be maintained by being transparent or to conform and to say things that I knew were no longer a part of my life. So with that in mind, the second thing happened. I, I did a series of, of, of messages at Fellowship Bible Church that I called hot potatoes, things you just don't want to keep in your hands and you pass them on so churches don't like to talk about them because they'll burn you. And one of the top topics of that day and still is today somewhat was the terminology we used in that time, 2008, was homosexuality. And I'd preached sermons before on, on the scripture passages on homosexuality. And I'll be honest with you, and I hate to say it, but I want to be transparent. I'd even said in some of those earlier sermons, God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. I did that. I said that. And I'm so absolutely crushed that I did. So I wanted to do something different this time. I wanted to be transparent. So I had never had an opportunity to hear a story of anybody who had uh, sexual orientation different than my own. So Denise and I started a year-long listening tour, so to speak, kind of like politicians do, I guess, where we just had lunch with, dinner with, coffee with, wine with, beer with, whatever the individuals would like to have. And we would almost every week would go with somebody for an entire year before I preached this sermon. And what Denise and I discovered in those conversations, and this is not exaggeration, it's not preach, preaching uh, exaggerating, I bet 99% of the people that we talked to 
told a story of how the church had hurt them. And Denise and I would come back to our house, even in the car coming home, and we'd just be weeping because we were part of the belief system that caused that hurt. We were, and I was a, a spokesperson, and I was, I, I knew that I was responsible for that pain. I knew that I was a person who was uh, complicit in that pain and in that hurt and in that rejection. And so Denise and I would come home and we'd look at each other and say, what in the heck have we done? And then we said, but what can we do now? I can't change my past. I wish I could, but I can do something now and I can do something in the future. My assistant at the church at that time, she was a closet supporter of my views. <laughs> she couldn't come out with that either, but she gave me a, uh, a video before the Bible tells me so. You can tell how old that thing is. But Denise and I watched that, and, and it transformed us, and it just told stories about the abuse, spiritual abuse that churches had been guilty of in the LGBTQ community. And that video sealed the deal, and uh, I decided I was going to come out, not as gay, but as gay questioning. Before I had no questions. It was wrong, and it was a sin. But this year-long study presented to me, when I taught, taught this sermon in 2008, uh, I asked the church body that Sunday two questions about LGBTQ. Is it a choice? Most people expected me to say, yes, it is a choice. But I unequivocally said that morning, no, I do not believe it's a choice based on science, based on the evidence from the stories of individuals at Denise. I've never done a sociological study on it, but based on biology and science and the anecdotal evidence, no, I don't believe it's a choice. The second question I asked was, is it a sin? Now, the elders knew what I was going to say somewhat, uh, but I changed it when I got to that question. They were expecting me to say, yes, it's a sin. Uh, and I wasn't honest with them because I knew I wasn't going to say it was. But I didn't want them to tell me I couldn't say it. And it's easier to ask forgiveness and permission. <laughs> so when I asked that question, is it a sin, this is what I said. I don't know. And you could have heard a pin drop in that room of a thousand people. Here was an evangelical voice, a conservative pastor, in the Bible belt, maybe even the buckle of the Bible belt, telling us that he doesn't know if homosexuality is a sin. Well, Denise and I left that afternoon to go see our other son who was living in Kansas City at the time. And when I, we got home on Monday, boy, the, the poo-poo point hit the fan. <laughs> Whatever poo-poo point, I don't know why they named it that, but Denise and I hiked it. <laughs> and it was the pooped out point. We were absolutely beat. But I, just, I got in so much trouble and the elders in 2008 uh, began to limit my teaching and they began to put me in with a team of teachers to rotate me out 
and I wouldn't lead the church astray. Long story short, they had enough of me, and they fired me in 2012 over two issues, basically three issues, but the two that pertain maybe to us are uh, my, my, my position on LGBTQ, and although I wasn't totally affirming at that point, but I, I was questioning and I was inviting and uh, over my view of the scripture that I did not believe in inerrancy. When I preached that sermon in 2008, I closed with the, with the Billy Graham quote, and uh, is it a choice, is it a sin? And Billy Graham was asked one time what he thought about Bill Clinton's and Monica Lewinsky's affair and everything like that. And his response to the reporter was, you know, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict, it's God's job to judge, and my job is to love. And so I invited the Fellowship Bible congregation that Sunday. I said, listen, I don't know where you are on that, but just join me in the journey to learn from people and to listen to their stories. And I invite all of us to love people regardless of where we fall on this issue. So when they let me go, uh, the elders said, Philip, you've changed. You're not the same preacher. You're not the same person you were in 1994 when Denise and I started that church. And I said, I know, isn't it wonderful that I'm not the same? My dad had a friend who was his age. My dad's 88. And dad and he got into a discussion, argument about theology. And this other man was a leader in the Southern Baptist Convention. And he told dad, and they were in their, you know, 50s, 60s when this conversation took place. And uh, a guy told dad, I have not changed my theology since I was 16. And dad said to him, well, that's just ridiculous. That you haven't grown since you were 16. And I think a lot of us quit growing. We're afraid to grow. And uh, I'm glad I wasn't the same as I was in 94. So a group of people from Fellowship Bible uh, agreed with some of my views, and they uh, wanted me to start a church, so we started the venues. And Devin became a part of that. Devin, we started the church in 2013, and Devin was our creative arts director. He was our permanent pastor of our bar church. We have a downtown Springfield location where we meet in a bar, and he taught there every week. And four years ago, he was ordained by our church and uh, became my associate. And he, he was really my plan on retirement. And I, I was looking to retire within a few years, and then he moved up here, so thank you all. <laughs> but anyway, it's all good, whatever the plan, whatever the plan is. In the fall of 2014, I did a couple of sermons on gay stuff again, and I, 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 <laughs> I told the church at that time, and I said, I want, I, you all need to know that I am 100% behind the LGBTQ community. 100% of me believes that it is not a choice. 100% of me believes it is not a sin, that God blesses the relationship between same-sex individuals, that whatever the scriptures are saying, it is not referring to a love relationship between the same-sex individuals. And we lost, I don't know, 60 people from the venues at that point. Uh, they just weren't quite ready for that. 
and it's a conservative town still. That's okay, and I was sad, but it, it's okay. Uh, in 20, uh, oh gosh, whenever the Supreme Court, 2015, June 26, 2015, when they legalized same-sex marriage, I, I became a celebrant for gay weddings, and I've done probably 50 of those within the last, uh, since 2015. And uh, I still get criticism uh, almost on a weekly basis, liberal, heretic, off the rails. And it kind of shocks people because I was a primary voice for, for conservative Christianity in Springfield. And now then, I'm a heretic, I'm a liberal, I'm gay affirming and uh, we fly the flag and all that stuff, the rainbow flag, not the other flags. And, and it's just really a shocking to people. So this is where I am today theologically. And this is, it may not be right, honestly. It's just a comfortable thing for me. Where I am today is I love Scripture, but my Christianity is not about Scripture. The earliest Christians did not have a Bible. They did not have a book. They had Jesus. Before Jesus was executed on the cross, he told his disciples that he was going away and he was going to give them a gift. And what he gave them was not a book. He said, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. The gift that Jesus gave his disciples was not a book, it was the Spirit. My foundation had been a book. It wasn't the Spirit. When Jesus gave the Great Commission, we learned this as Baptists. We had to memorize this in sunbeams. When he gave the Great Commission, he said this, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Then go into all the world and teach and preach and all that stuff. This is so important to me. All authority in heaven and earth, he doesn't say, has been given to a book that a bunch of guys are going to write. He said, all authority has been given to me. I grew up in a tradition in which the foundation of my faith was Scripture. I'm hearing Jesus say, no, Philip, I think the foundation of your faith is Christ, is Jesus. All authority has been given to Jesus. Not in a book that tells a story about Jesus, but in Jesus. So the problem the foundation that I have is not the Scripture, and the problem is not the Bible. I, I love the Bible more than I've ever loved it. The problem is not the Bible. The problem is what I expected out of the Bible. It does not give me life. Jesus told the Pharisees, you look at the Scriptures as if it's going to give you life, but the Scriptures point to me. I was looking at the Scriptures for life. Jesus says, no, I give life. The Spirit gives life. So I had to move my commitment away from Scripture. That's Christ. We used to sing a song in the Baptist church of, of the themes that men have known. One supremely stands alone. Through the ages it has shown its wonderful, wonderful love. The chorus went, love is the theme. Love is supreme. We even sang in church that love is the most important thing, but we didn't practice love toward each other and toward the world. We also sang a song about uh, a foundation. 
On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. We sang it, but we didn't practice it. What we practice is on Scripture and how the preacher interprets Scripture is the ground upon which I stand. So I really just began to practice really some things that we were taught. So here is what I want to leave you with today. The original inhabitants of Issaquah, and I can't pronounce their name properly, so I apologize, were called the Duwamish. Is that correct? Duwamish? Okay. The Duwamish is an Anglo-Europeanized word which means this. It means people of the inside, and literally it refers to people who lived inland. But I want it to be a metaphor for my life. I want to be a person today who lives on the interior. What I mean by that is that I have within me, you have within you, every person on the planet has within them the interior of the image of God. We all have been created in the divine image. We have within us the image of God. That's our true self. The outside of my life has been kind of hard. And the outside of my life has been judgmental. It has been comparing. I'm better than you. It has been fear-based. I'm afraid of these other people, and I'm afraid of what I don't understand, so I, I, I want to destroy it. I want to hurt it. And the hate and the fear is all on the outside. And I, I really think about it like this. I think about it, my life is pretty much like a Tootsie Roll. And on the outside, I've got all this hate, all this hard stuff, this judgmentalism. But through experiences, some of that stuff has fallen off. It's been licked off through my experiences. And I'm discovering that within me is this soft center. Within me is the image of God. God is love. In me is love. And in you is love. And even in the terrorists, there is love. In my enemy, there is love. And so my goal today, my role today, is just to help all of us just get rid of that harsh outside, that harsh exterior, and to discover the soft image of God. So just have a tootsie roll. And <laughs> I, don't, I don't eat these anymore because I got celiac. I don't know if they're gluten-free or not. Yeah, read the, read the label. So as we take communion today, this is what I want us to think. And you can put the tootsie roll pop in your... Yes, you heard that all the way from class. And if I didn't buy enough, I'll go to Safeway and bring back some more. You all know the story when Jesus uh, talked to the folks and he said to them, you can't put new wine in old wineskins. As we do communion today, I want us to hear Jesus saying to you, you know, you've got some old wineskins. Those old wineskins were very religious you were taught that those wineskins were right, but the wineskins are about judgment. They're about comparing. 
They're about fear. They're about hate. They're about who's right and who's wrong, who's superior, who's inferior. And Jesus maybe is saying to us today, I've got some new wine for you, and it's okay to leave those old wineskins away. It's okay to leave my wineskins in my youth. I love my dad. I love my mom. I love my denomination that I grew up in. There was value. But it's okay to leave it, leave it behind. Especially, that church hurt me. Church hurt other people. Maybe in our communion today, we can just leave that wineskin behind and realize that we're the new wineskin. And Jesus is pouring that new wine of love, that new wine of acceptance, that new wine that sees Christ in all, not just only in Jesus, a wine in which love is always going to win. And that new wine just doesn't fit maybe into our old religious wineskins, but does fit into us. And so as Devin and anybody else that comes to assist him uh, to receive the new wine represented in the person of Jesus through his body and through his blood. Jesus, thank you so much for embodying the Christ. Thank you for giving us new wine and recognizing, helping us recognize that the old religious wineskins are not adequate to hold the beautiful wine of love that you have for us. Help us to let go today and be okay with letting go so that we can take on that fresh wine that you have. And in the name of in the name of God, in the name of Christ everywhere, we pray. Amen.